have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. On that program on the top, you see there a little blurb, and uh, probably no one reads it anymore. You probably read it the first time, and you don't read it anymore. But it's there every week because we want to remind you, we want to remind ourselves consistently why we're here. Why are we here as a church? Why did we step out however many months ago to uh, start this new church in this part of South Florida? And the reason we're doing that is because we believe that Jesus meant it when he said that he came, not like the thief to steal and to kill and destroy, but so that we might have life and have it in abundance. We believe that Jesus really meant it when he said that. And the Bible is very clear where that abundant life is found. It is found in a life of wholehearted worship, in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's found in authentic community with other people, and it's found in obedience to the mission that God has for us in the world. And when we experience new life in Christ and are brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross, when we're brought together in real, authentic, loving community, and when we are obedient to the mission that Jesus has in the world, we begin to experience in, in, in a small way, the fullness of life we will experience in eternity. And we're here to help people find that life. For Christians who are maybe living with less than the, the fullness of what God is offering to them, and for those who are not Christians, to find that life for the first time and to be brought to Christ and to experience salvation. One of the clearest things the Bible teaches about community, which we emphasize a lot and we talk about a lot, and as a core value for us, worship, community, and mission, one of the things the Bible talks about as it relates to community is that God designed community to be with people who are not like you. That true, authentic Christian community is a community of unity in the midst of diversity. So you can go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says that there was this great multitude around the throne in heaven. It says people from every tongue and tribe and family and nation. You can go to Galatians 3.28, which says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but in Christ we are all one. Colossians 3.11 says there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, that Christ has brought together this diverse humanity together in this new family, this new people called the church. When we come to Christ, God doesn't erase our differences. We are still different from one another. And so I will eternally be who God has made me. And so who he made me to be was a half Scandinavian, quarter Croatian, quarter Welsh, 100% American, born in California, and raised as a white man in America. I will be that forever. As we are gathered together, our church with all the Christians from all times around the throne of Jesus, I will be that. That's who I will be. That's who God made me, and he did it on purpose and with good intentions. And you will be whoever God has made you to be. This week I was at uh, a triannual conference called the Mosaics National Conference, which is all about what it means to build churches and to be churches that look like that picture of heaven here on earth. To be churches full of people who are united in the midst of their difference. 
to be churches where people who, you know, maybe remember where they had the TV where you had to get up and change the little dial. Anyone remember that? I, I, we had one of those as a kid. Our extra TV was one of those. Where you have people who remember before they had remotes for the TV. And then you also have people who can't remember the last time they watched TV because everything they need is on the, the smart, their smartphone or their parents' smartphone, as the case may be with my kids. And people who maybe have different skin tones from one another, from very light to almost translucent like mine, and to people who have medium brown or dark skin, people who maybe grew up speaking English in their home like I did, or people who grew up speaking Portuguese or Spanish or some other language, people who prefer to vote one way versus who prefer to vote another way. We are all together together in this as a united and diverse body. And those, the, 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 the unity that we have in Christ does not erase the differences that we have. And we, when we try to pretend that we're colorblind, we're actually not being honest, and we're actually not giving God the glory that is His for the diversity around us that He delights in. My wife and I love the show This Is Us. I don't know if there's any other This Is Us fans. Um, and it's like waterworks every week. It's like a soap opera on primetime. And it's about this family, the Pearson family, and Rebecca and Jack Pearson. And they have two biological twins and then a third son who was born the same day. And by a, a miracle of providence uh, is an African-American son who they adopted in the hospital. And so they have three children with all who all have the same birthday, two of whom are biological twins and one who is an African-American black child in a white family. And one, uh, one, uh, an episode, one of the episodes, uh, Jack, the father, is talking to his son, Randall, his black son. And he says, Randall, you have to understand, when I see you, I don't see color. And Randall looks at him and says, well, then, Dad, you don't see me. Because I am who I am. I'm not the same as my brother. Now, we are one family, but well, there are differences between us. When God calls us together, he doesn't call us to just ignore our differences, but to a common unity. Think of the word community. Where does that word come from? You've probably never thought about it. Maybe you never have. It comes from two words, common unity, that, that we are different, but we're united together despite our differences. But in the midst of this real diversity, there are differences among us. We do have a common unity, a community. And we're united, first of all, as people. Every person who has ever lived has something in common with every other person who has ever lived, and that is that they are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, through 28. God says, let us make man in our image and likeness, that every person ever born is made in the image of God, no matter what language they grew up speaking, what part of the world they come from, what color skin they have, everyone bears the image of God. No one person and no one group of people, ethnically or culturally, can sh fully showcase the glory of God and the image of God. Every person is the image of God, and humanity as a whole bears the image of God. So we have that in common. We also have a second thing in common. That's a, that's a good thing, but we also have a tragic thing in common, and that is every single one of us has been made in the image of God, but has been born dead in our sin. That spiritually we have no life in us. 
So in the the midst of all of our very real diversity and in the midst of the differences we have with people who don't believe like we believe, we have something in common. We have the image of God and the need for life. We all need life. And and we're going to see Jesus talk about that this morning in John chapter 3. We all need life. We're going to look at two passages from John chapter 1 and then in John chapter 2 to give us a little bit of context. So the thing we all need, we all need life. So look at this first verse from John chapter 1. It says, Jesus, the word, was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So in the book of John, John is the very beginning, has set out his pattern for what people need. And that is life. To be born of God. Not simply physical birth, but spiritual new birth. The second verse we need to give us some context here is in the end of chapter 2. Jesus um, has turned water into wine in chapter 2. And then in the end of chapter 2, we see that uh, many people are believing in him as he's gone into the temple and turned the tables over and cleansed out the temple. But then there's this weird verse at the end. It says, Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, now, so we've got this context for the new birth in chapter 1, and then this weird statement about Jesus not trusting man, humanity, any person, because he knew what was in them. And then we're going to go to chapter 3, verse 1, where we see a man comes to Jesus. And so what's happening in chapter 2 is that people see the signs and they believe in Jesus in a superficial way, but not in a real way. What people need is is not just superficial belief, but people need new life. That's the first thing we see in chapter 1, is we all need new life. We all need new life. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, I think I got too excited. I didn't pray before we started. Let's just pause for a second. Pray, okay? Father, I just ask you in the midst of this um, message, and what I've already said and what I'm about to say, that, you're, that you would speak through me, that I'd be faithful to your word, that your spirit would have freedom to, to edit me as necessary. If there's anything that I've prepared to say that I don't need to say, um, and if there's anything that I haven't prepared to say that I do need to say, Lord, that, that you would speak to your people and you would bring life because only you can do that. I can't do that. I'm, no, no human can do that, let alone me, to, to speak life into someone. But your spirit can do that, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. We all need life. We all need new life. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. So at the end of chapter 2, it says, Jesus did not trust anyone because he knew what was in man. And then in verse 3, it says, there was a man. And so he's tying it directly in that this is someone who doesn't fully get it. A man, and his name is Nicodemus. Scholars have tied in this name very likely to a very prominent, wealthy, educated family in Judea at this time, Nicodemus. And, and he comes to Jesus, and it says two things about Nicodemus and one thing about his approach to Jesus. First, he's a man from the Pharisees. Now, we think of the Pharisees and our immediate thing is like legalistic people. That's our first thought. But that wouldn't have been their first thought when they read this. Pharisees were people who had the most balanced and sound biblical doctrine of all the Jewish groups in that time. So when Jesus consistently beats on the Pharisees for hypocrisy, it's because their beliefs are the closest to his, but they still don't get it. So we see Nicodemus was a man who had sound theology. He understood the Bible. He knew the scripture. He was educated and he was aware of, he, he wasn't wacky. He, did, he knew what he believed and what he believed was correct by and large. So we see he's a Pharisee, but he's also a ruler of the Jews. So he doesn't just have sound theology, he has social importance. He was a member of the ruling class of the Sanhedrin. He was a powerful and educated person. So we see Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes to him as a Pharisee with good biblical knowledge and as a ruler with important and prominent social position, but he comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus at night because he's afraid to be seen as a follower. He, he, he doesn't want anyone to know that he is kind of starting to believe what Jesus is saying. He says to Jesus, he says, we know, Rabbi, you're a teacher from God. We know you're a teacher from God because no one could do what you're doing if God was not with him. Now, he says this. It's not a question. It's a statement that sort of is inviting a response. And, and it's, it's sort of um, coming from a position of, you know, we've all been around those people who know a lot about whatever it is we're talking about. And they sort of like lay on to us like all the knowledge that they have. And it's like, it's like a question, but it's really a statement in the form of a question. Well, this is a question in the form of a statement. It's inviting response, but it's also trying to display Nicodemus' own stature and education. And Jesus, he, he answers, and it's like, it's like he, he says, it's just so weird what Jesus says here. Jesus says, truly I say to you that unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is a weird statement because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what Nicodemus has just said to him. It's like when uh, Laura and I love uh, watching The West Wing, a show from the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And in uh, one of the episodes, the guy running for vice president, his media team counsels him. When they ask, the, the press asks you a question, don't accept the premise of the question. Answer the question you wish you were asked. And that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't accept the premise of 
Nicodemus's question because what Nicodemus is thinking of is in terms of education. But what Jesus knows is the crucial need is regeneration. That Nicodemus is, is thinking, you're a teacher who is teaching things, and the signs you're doing are giving witness that your teaching is true. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true, but you're missing the point. You don't need more education. You need regeneration. You need new life inside of you. The word for born again could actually be born from above. And we're going to see that, that Jesus talk about what it means that he came from heaven and that the Spirit comes from heaven. And he's saying to Nicodemus, yes, I am a teacher from God, but that's not the main need. I don't need to validate myself to you, Nicodemus. You need new life inside of you. Life inside of you that would lead you to not come to me under the cloak of darkness, but to proclaim me in the light. Everyone needs new life. We're all in the same boat. Whether you're old or young, black or white, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, you need new life. Everyone, everyone in Lighthouse Point needs new life. Everyone in Deerfield Beach needs new life. Everyone in Pompano Beach needs new life. Everyone in Boca and Margate and Coral Springs, everyone. We're all equal. There, I, I was at that conference this week and I, I flew on Spirit Airlines. There's no, there are no ballers on Spirit Airlines. You know, sometimes you're flying with people, and like sometimes we fly JetBlue, and they're people who are in the mint class, which is like the seats lay flat, and they're like $40,000 for one way, you know. And it's like, man, that might be someone important. That, that, might, that person might have some money. But there's nobody like that on Spirit Airlines. Because if they were a baller, they wouldn't be on Spirit Airlines. And so I, instead of paying for a carry-on, you know, they charge you for everything. They actually tried to charge people to go to the bathroom, but the FAA wouldn't let them. And, and so instead of paying for a carry-on, I paid for a seat that fits me, and so I paid $50 for what they call the big front seat. And so I'm sitting up in the front, and I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to be important and wealthy, except it was $50, not $5,000. There's no one important. The people in the front on spirit are the people the same as the people in the back. They just wanted to spend the money on the big seat instead of an extra suitcase. And this is what's happening in the kingdom of God. There are no ballers. There are no, there's nobody with a leg up in the kingdom of God. Everybody's at the same place. Everybody needs new life. And the only place where anyone can receive life and everyone must receive life from God himself. We, we are all on the same plane. We must receive life. We can't earn life. We can't achieve life. We must receive life. This whole text is based upon three interactions. Nicodemus starts with this long statement, this sort of arrogant, prideful statement, and then he begins to speak less. And ask more. Here we see, how can anyone be born again when he is old? Can he enters his, enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is not so stupid that he thinks Jesus is talking about physical new birth. What he's doing here, he's basically telling Jesus that he's crazy. He's like, oh, like you mean someone getting back in their mom's womb and being born again? Like he's being sarcastic and dismissive because he has no category for what Jesus just told him about being born again. He has a category for education, but he doesn't have a category for personal regeneration. He, he has a category for learning about the kingdom, but not a category for understanding that if we are not given new spiritual life, we cannot see the kingdom. So he makes a sarcastic comment. And I get that, because sarcasm is my love language. I get why Nehemiah or Nicodemus is doing this. He's making this sarcastic comment to Jesus. And Jesus says again, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's basically saying the same thing he just said in different words. Verse 3, he says you must be born again. Here he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. In verse 3, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Here he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying the same thing with slightly different nuance. Here is he's probably calling Nicodemus out because Nicodemus, and he's going to say this directly in a minute, should have understood this. Because there's this passage in Ezekiel that we have up here, Ezekiel 36, Verses 24 through 27, this was written uh, 500 or so years, 600 years before, Jesus, before Christ during the exile of, Jeru- of, of the Israelites to ba- uh, Babylon. It says, for I will take you from the nations, so God's going to say, I'm going to bring you back from exile and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. So it's a new exodus, like he brought them out of Egypt, he's going to bring them back from exile. He says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So when Jesus says... You must be born of water and the Spirit. He's referring back to what Ezekiel had promised. Water is cleansing. Spirit is regenerating. That you must be made new and you must receive this. You cannot achieve this. Don't be surprised, Jesus says. Can we go back to the last slide with with, uh, John 3 on it? Don't be amazed that you must, if I say you must be born again. Whatever's born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever's born of the spirit is spirit. So, so in other words, how can you expect to have spiritual life if you've never received spiritual birth? Just like you can't be physically alive if you've never been physically made, brought into this world. And he says, do not be amazed if I tell you that you must be born again. The, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit what he's saying there what he's saying there is you can't make yourself 
alive. And you can't make anyone else alive. Only the sovereign spirit of God can give anybody life. Only Jesus, through his spirit, can give life to any person. That's the only hope we have as a church, as we're on mission with Jesus. And we see people who are so far from God, so disinterested in the gospel. And you know what? That's the, the state of everyone's heart is equal. Everyone is in need of the miracle, miraculous regeneration of the Spirit of God to come in to cleanse them and give them new spiritual life, to put a new spiritual heart within them. That is the dividing line. You want to talk about difference in this world. The difference is not between old and young. The difference is not between black and white or brown or Spanish or English or Portuguese or Republican or Democrat. As much as anyone wants you to think that, the difference is those who are in Christ versus those who are not. That those who are in Christ have a common unity that is greater than any other factor that unites any other group of people in this world. You must receive life. And here's the third movement of the text in verses 9 through 20. Only Jesus offers life. We all need life. You must receive life. And only in Jesus can you find life. How can these things be, Nicodemus asked. So he's gone. Nicodemus, watch what's happening in Nicodemus' heart and his life. He's gone from saying, teacher, we know you're from God because no one can do the things. And this long statement, this arrogant statement trying to show off like, like in seminary class, you know, people would raise their hand and they would make this long statement trying to make themselves sound smart. And now he's gone from that to saying, how can this be? I don't get it. And that's, at that, that's the point where Jesus can meet you. When you realize you don't have the answers and you can't figure it out and you can't fix it. And Jesus gently, maybe not so gently, responds, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He, you, should, you should know this. He should have understood. He should, he probably, most likely, had mo much of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, memorized. He knew that, he knew it better than anybody here. He knew Genesis all the way through. He knew, every, he knew it backwards and forwards, and he, but he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Because it wasn't about education. It was about regeneration. He's like, Jesus says, you're the teacher, and in the original Greek, it's not a teacher, it's literally, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not the teacher of Israel, and Nicodemus, he was probably well-known, like, you know, you got your favorite radio teachers and TV preachers and that, people know who they are, well, this is probably Nicodemus, people knew who Nicodemus was, and Jesus says, you're this guy, and you don't get it? He says, no, 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 I'm the true teacher, Jesus is saying. I'm the true teacher, and the teaching I bring can only be spiritually discerned and received upon regeneration and new life. Life comes by the Spirit's power, and the Spirit always points us to Jesus. And he points us to Jesus in two ways. He points us first, Jesus tells us, tells Nicodemus, to Jesus' incarnation. And then he teaches us of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus offers life, first of all, through the incarnation. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus speaking, Truly I tell you, 
We speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, you might notice Jesus says, we speak what we know and we testify. What's he, why is he saying we there? Well, I think what he's doing is what Nicodemus did in the first part of the text where it says, we know you're a teacher from God. And Jesus says, well, we know what we speak and testify of what we have seen. Jesus says, you might think you know the scripture, but I know the truth of God because I've seen it myself. What he's saying here is, I am God who came from God. I am the Son who came from the Father. I am the one who is eternally God with the Father and the Holy Spirit and who was sent by the Father into the world to become a man so that I could live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, buried and raised from the dead, so anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in me will be forgiven their sin and given eternal life. Eternal life means you, you have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a teacher or a miracle worker. He wasn't just a, a human on super steroids. He wasn't even just the Son of God. If by the Son of God you don't mean fully God. Jesus was God himself. Who is God? God is eternal. He has no beginning or no, and no end. He doesn't exist in time, but he transcends time. God is infinite. There is no limit to God. God is self-sufficient. We all have to receive life from someone else. God has life in himself. He is self-sustaining and self-sufficient. God is all-knowing. He knows all things. God is all-powerful. God is all-present. Jesus is saying, I am in human flesh and human nature, God himself. I am the unkillable God who has become a killable man. In Jesus, the eternal God became a time-bound man, and the powerful God became a weak and tired man, and the ever-living God became a man who could be killed. And that leads us to the next point, that Jesus life through the crucifixion. This is what he tells Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus offers life through the crucifixion. Now this is a weird, pat verse 14 is kind of weird. What, Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What, what, is that what in the world is that talking about? Well, this is a story from Numbers chapter 21. Uh, I think I have it up here. Um, long, I was trying to get it all in one slide, so forgive me for that. Uh, but here's what's happening. The people have been set free from Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land, but then they don't believe God when he tells them they're going to take the promised land. And so God says, okay, I'm not going to give you the promised land until this entire generation dies out. And it says they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people of Israel became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food, the manna. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, 
and bit them so that many Israelites died. Okay, you think being a Christian in 2019 in America is hard. Try being an Israelite on the receiving end of one of these snake bites. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against you and the Lord. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people, and Moses said, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Some You may have seen like med- med- the, med- the symbol for medical care now is this. Is this it's the, the serpent on a pole. What's happening here? Well, there's a whole lot we can't unpack. But basically what's happening is that the curse, the snakes, became the cure, the snake on the pole. And that the Israelites, all they had to do, they're lying sick and on the point of death, and all they had to do was have enough faith to turn and look at the snake on the pole. So Jesus says, we can go back to the previous slide with chapter 3, John 3 on it. When he says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What he's saying is, the curse of death has become the cure for death. That as I am crucified and lifted up, as Moses lifted up that cursed snake, I have become the very cure for death. And that just like with Moses, the only only requirement was to look at the snake The only requirement now is for you to believe in the Son of Man. So that everyone, everyone, everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Everyone and anyone. There's no, you, there's nothing you could have done that God cannot provide for in the death of His Son. There's no one who's too good to need the cross, and there's no one who's too bad to receive the cross. Everyone and anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In the context here, this is everyone knows John 3.16, everyone Everyone knows that's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. In the context here, he's explaining what he just said about Moses and the snake. He's saying this is the love of God. The love of God is that the curse we have brought upon ourselves because of our sin, God, through his son Jesus, has turned into the cure. And that in Jesus' shame and seeming defeat of being raised up on the cross, a symbol of crucifixion, death, and humiliation, God has glorified his son, and shown the world what love looks like. You know, love is a Christian virtue. In the ancient world, Greek philosophy, they had four cardinal virtues. Plato and Aristotle talked about the the cardinal virtues of fortitude, prudence, justice, and temperance. But not until the gospel came into the world did medieval theologians begin to talk about the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. People love love. Love is, love is like the most popular thing in the world today. 
and everyone wants to define love basically by accepting anything that goes and just being nice to people. But love is a Christian virtue that is part of our societal value system because of the gospel. And love is a very specific definition. It is the Father sent His Son to the cross. He sent His Son to be incarnate, the incarnation, and to be crucified in the crucifixion. This is how we get life. We have to receive it from Jesus, his incarnation and his crucifixion. And then the question becomes to Nicodemus and to us is, will you receive salvation or will you remain under judgment? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Remember, what, when does Nicodemus come and talk to him? It's at night. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. I'm not going to go through this line by line for the sake of, sake of time. The question is this. Will you receive salvation or will you remain under condemnation? Will you receive salvation or will you remain under judgment? The Son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but anyone who does not believe in the Son is already condemned. St. Augustine said many, many years ago about this verse, he says, the one who refuses to follow the doc doctor's prescriptions kills himself. I've talked before about Steve Jobs and his hubris when he was diagnosed with cancer and thought he could kill himself by eating fruit. And by the time he was willing to accept actual medical care, it was too late. Will you receive the cure and the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ for your sins, or will you remain under judgment? It's the question that Jesus is putting to Nicodemus. He's saying, you're coming to me at night in secret, and you believe, but you don't believe. The question is, will you remain in the darkness, or will you come into the light? We know how Nicodemus responded. In John chapter 7, we see, Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, they're wanting to condemn Jesus, they're wanting to conspire to arrest Jesus. God doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So he's beginning to step out of the darkness and into the light. And he's raising a question on the council that's trying to conspire to kill Jesus and say, well, are, do, you, do we really need to play it that way? And what does he get? He gets rebuked. You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus had a, had a, had a decision to make. Was he going to remain in the darkness, asking evasive questions, Stepping out a little bit? Or was he going to step fully into the light? 
as a born-again, regenerate follower of Jesus Christ. After Jesus was crucified, there's a man named Joseph. was a disciple, and secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Nicodemus said, you know what? I'm all in. I'm all in, come what may, from the social circle that I'm a part of, come what may in terms of financial consequences. I'm all in. I'm going to go to Jesus and I'm going to take all of my wealth and all of my position and I'm going to use it to anoint the body of this dead man because I don't believe that he'll stay dead. Will you believe what you believe? Come out of the light, out of the darkness. Oh man, I messed that up, didn't I? Come out of the light and <laughs> come out of the darkness and into the light. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you for your regenerating spirit to come now into the hearts of anyone here who does not have life inside of them and that you would turn their heart from stone to flesh, and that you would turn their heart from doubt to faith, that you would turn their life from sin to obedience, that you would turn their life from dark to light. And Lord, for us who have been given life from Christ, that we would walk in the light, we would not remain in the darkness, and realize that the only way to be healed, the only way, the only way is to bring those things into the light. And there you will meet us with kindness and with grace and with love. We know you love us because you gave your only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it's in his name we pray.